Thanks, Rob. No idea how scary it is standing up here for the first time leading, <laughs> or even the second, or third, <laughs> or fourth. <laughs> so um, we are continuing in our series uh, in Isaiah this morning. Your God is too small. I think you may have picked that up from the reading. And uh, let's have... A quick recap for those of you that maybe weren't able to be here last week or have just simply forgotten. Uh, So this is a piece of parchment that uh, is very old (laughs) and is authentic. And there are very few discrepancies in this piece of parchment than the previous one that was found a thousand years earlier. So we can have confidence in the word of God, in the book of Isaiah, that it is Uh, accurate. Jesus quoted more from Isaiah than any other book apart from the Psalms. Paul quoted more from Isaiah than any other Old Testament book. The book of Isaiah gives us unrivaled insight into the character of God. And you'll remember if you were here last week that I said it's like the Bible in miniature because it parallels the Old Testament and the New Testament. So quick test, how many books in the Old Testament? 39, all right, all other numbers are wrong, (laughs) okay, 39. And a little clue to help you to remember how many books are in the New Testament, three times nine is 27, 27 books in the New Testament, 39 and 27 adds up to how many chapters are there in Isaiah? Brilliant, we're making progress. 39 chapters are known as the Book of Judgment, not entirely that, but more or less. A little bit similar to the idea of the Old Testament. 27 books in the second half of Isaiah, second part of Isaiah, the Book of Comfort. And it reveals something of the depth of the character of God, and obviously we're looking at that today. Reveals the depth of the gospel, and over these next weeks ahead, as we look particularly at the servant songs, we'll see even more of that, some of the echoes of the first half of Isaiah, and it reveals the depth of God's plan for the whole of human history, that this book is not just for Judah, or even for Israel, but for the whole entire world. So here we go, nice and big. We have creation in the patriarchs, then we have the time in Egypt when they're slaves under Pharaoh, then the exodus and the inheritance of the promised land, then the period of the judges where everybody did what was right in their own eyes. At the end of that, they say, we want a king. God says, you don't want a king. We want a king. They get a king. In fact, they get a whole period of kings, most of which isn't great. Then there's the division of the kingdoms, Israel in the north, the ten tribes, Judah in the south, the two tribes. Isaiah comes in at that point, he is preaching to the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah. And last week, as a bit bigger for you, uh, we focused on a particular year, 740 BC, the year that King Uzziah died. And Isaiah had that vision of God in the temple and his calling from God to preach to the people of Judah. Jotham is the next king. The Assyrian Empire is getting to its height. And you have wonderfully named rulers like Tiglath-Pileser III, Shalmaneser, and Sargon II. And they are all significant figures who we can find in history and whose artifacts are to be found in the British Museum, apart from other places in the world where you might find them. And we're still talking about doing a church trip. 
And this is the period where Isaiah is preaching. And 701 BC is the final time that we hear of him engaged in public ministry, which is at the same time as Sennacherib from Assyria invades. He is 69 years of age. He likely lived longer and probably preached longer as well. And some of these prophecies may be in that period of time. There is huge repression in the land under King Manasseh. This is when you do your pantomime booing, by the way. Excellent. More than that, in fact. More. He was seriously bad news. It is also the rise of the Babylonian exile uh, sorry, Babylonian Empire, and Isaiah can, yeah. <laughs> Isaiah can see them getting stronger on the horizon. And he sees, whether through his own wisdom or the supernatural revelation of God, that the exile is going to come. And in this latter part of his life, he is called to a new task. History tells us that uh, Isaiah was martyred. Many people were martyred, really, in the Bible. Um, he was put inside a tree, and the tree was sawn in half. It's not a great way to die, is it? Um, and some people have done exactly the same with his writings. They have sawn them right in half. Um, and we've talked about that a bit last week, and we're going to talk about it again today. Because the first half of Isaiah talks about Judah and Assyria, judgment, sin, and retribution. The second half talks much more about Zion and Babylon and comfort and salvation and redemption. So have we got two different people? Let's talk about the similarities. We spoke last week about the fact that Isaiah calls God Holy One of Israel. He's a unique title for God Almighty. Twelve times in the first half. Fourteen times, actually, in the second half. He speaks about Zion 31 times in the first half, 18 times in the second. He begins with the old city of Jerusalem in chapter 1 and verse 1. He speaks about Jerusalem in chapter 40, verse 2, which is the beginning of the second half, if you like. And he closes with God's new city on Mount Zion at the end of his first half and the end of the second half. So you get this consistency. But if you can't remember all of that, oh, let's go back a bit then perhaps remember this. There is no single ancient Hebrew or Greek manuscript that's divided up in any way. So what we have in here is exactly what it's been in Hebrew and Greek manuscripts for all time. You would have thought they might have got separated if they had been written by separate people. We should not be surprised that Isaiah the prophet foretold the future so accurately. After all, it was his job. And we believe in that, don't we? Thank you, Mike. And Jesus and the New Testament writers imply strongly that Isaiah wrote the whole book. So maybe we should simply follow them. <laughs> so here we are. Isaiah the sequel, if you like. Isaiah the sequel. I don't know whether you ever have these conversations in your family, probably not because you're all perfect, where you're having a conversation around the dinner table and at some point you say, probably to a child, can you please adjust your tone? To which the reply is, what tone? Good, it's nice that some of you are nodding at this point. I feel encouraged. Isaiah is kind of adjusting his tone. It's the same Isaiah, but his tone is moving more from judgment 
the comfort. It's the same message, but it's coming with a different tone. He has this wonderful connection to Isaiah 35, which is kind of really the end of his first book, because there's a bit of history thrown in the middle there, where he talks about the promise of a highway being there, a highway of holiness, a highway where the ransomed and redeemed of the Lord will walk. And then in Isaiah chapter 40, at the beginning, he talks about a highway in the wilderness, this same message from Isaiah about this promise, he is now saying, this is going to happen right now. Your sin is paid for. You know, that's still a message we need to hear, isn't it? Our sin is paid for. That's grace. The fact that we don't pay, but someone has paid in our place. That is still our message. Isaiah starts to speak about the coming of the Messiah, the way to know God and holiness for all time. He is preaching to people whose faith is burned out. Some of you have just walked into the sermon at this point. Whose faith is burned out, whose morale is gone, and whose hope is extinguished. That's the kind of people he's speaking to. And there's some people like that around even today, surprisingly enough. And he's saying to them, God is alive. God does care, and he's about to come back to you. That's his message. And he speaks these words, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. And I don't know how many of you can hear that without hearing Handel's Messiah as a kind of backdrop, actually for loads of this chapter. Comfort. Comfort is not when you put cotton wool around people and sort of, It's all kind of soft and squidgy. It's about strength. It's about strength with, bringing strength to. Cheap comfort is not only a waste of time, it's actually cruel. Because in reality, it's no comfort at all. To say to someone, comfort, and then they're not be comfort, it's just empty. But God speaks through Isaiah. He says, tell them comfort is coming, that my word is based on truth. And the beginning of this chapter in Isaiah is like a grand overture, isn't it? To a musical symphony. It introduces all of the major themes that are going to be played out in these coming chapters. Forgiveness, comfort to the humble, that he is strong, he is holy, that the glory of God will be revealed among the nations. All those themes start to be spoken about. And he speaks tenderly to Jerusalem. After 39 chapters of harsh judgment, pretty much, God says to Isaiah, speak tenderly to them. I don't think we use that word enough in our vocabulary or in our tone. Tenderness. I'm not even quite sure what it is. I just know when I'm on the receiving end of it. It's something kind of solid. It comes with someone who has a level of stature, but with gentleness. You can do your own definition, by the way. That's me just speaking out my head. (laughs) But this word tenderness, God speaks tenderly to them with authority and strength and gentleness so that they might listen 
And he says, a voice of one calling, in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low, the rough ground shall become level, the rugged places are plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed. You know, this is a picture here of the procession for a conquering hero who was coming in. And he didn't want to go up over mountains and down valleys, and so his aim was to flatten out, flatten out the desert, make a highway so that he and his chariot, with all his troops and soldiers behind him, could come into the city across the desert with the dust flying everywhere. This is the image. Make this highway in the desert. Raise up the valleys. Flatten down the mountains because your God is coming. Your conquering hero, God, is coming. He is going to return. And if you are the people in exile, then knowing that your God is coming, he is the conqueror over the Assyrians, over the Babylonians. He is coming, that there's going to be a highway. Not only is he coming, but he is going to take you home. On that same highway, he comes as a savior, a sovereign savior, and he returns with them like a shepherd. Those beautiful words. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power, verse 10. His arm rules for him. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those who have young. Just a stunning image. This conquering savior is the shepherd who gathers his flock that have been dispersed through the nations. He gathers them. He holds them to his heart. He leads those who have young. Just the most beautiful image, isn't it? We get shepherds, don't we? We live in the Yorkshire Dales. They were brave and courageous and defended their flocks against all comers. But they cared for them passionately and looked after them and nurtured them and watched over them till every single sheep was home. That's what our God does for us. And if you go to the end of chapter 40, verse 27... You see the people there. And the message, it says this, Why would you ever complain, O Jacob, or whine, Israel, saying, God has lost track of me. He doesn't care what happens to me. So, confession moment. Hands up if you've ever complained or whined to God. If you've ever said to him, you've lost track of me, you don't care what's happened to me. Because this is a common human condition. This is a long time ago. The people were saying that to God. You've forgotten about us. You don't care about us. You're not keeping an eye on us anymore. We've had enough. Oh, it's the human problem too, isn't it? Of our nations. You watch the news and you feel ever more desperate, don't you, about what you see. Because it's not just I'm in a mess. It's we are in a mess. We have all sorts of ways of addressing or trying to address our own messes. We're a bit like this. I'm going to leave it up till someone says they've got a headache. Um, and our world, when our world is in a mess, we have all these ways of addressing things. But you know what? Human problems will never be solved 
by economics or politics or science or self-help, but only by renewed understanding of the wonder and the glory and the majesty of our almighty God. But we turn to all the other things first and more. But actually what we need is a vision of God. And so my question is, what are your eyes focusing on? What are you distracted by? Or what are you focusing on? What choices have you made in the focus that you have? I found this quote by Wayne Greedham, whose theology I don't entirely agree with, but this quote is amazing. And he says this. The difference between God's being and ours is more than the difference between the sun and a candle, more than the difference between the ocean and a raindrop, more than the difference between the Arctic ice cap and a snowflake, more than the difference between the universe and the room we are sitting in. God's being is qualitatively different. No limitation or imperfection in creation should be projected onto our thought of God. He is the creator, all else is creaturely. All else can pass away in an instant. He necessarily exists forever. I think that's stunning because it starts to capture the vastness of God and what Isaiah is wanting for the people and what we want is for an encounter with God, uncreated, all-powerful, self-existent, maker of all things, uncontainable, unfathomable, infinite God. We need that encounter. When we have that encounter, it transforms everything. It gives us a different perspective. If God is entirely holy and good, then how can I tolerate any unholiness in myself or in this world? If God is entirely just and righteous, then how can I stand unrighteousness and injustice in the world? The bigger my view of God, the more impacting my life will be as I live that out in worship singing and worship living. We need to learn to embrace the smallness of who we are and marvel in the vastness of who he is. And so Isaiah gives us this whole set of rhetorical questions that are designed to bring out the sheer bigness of God. He takes these massive earthly things and he makes them seem ridiculously small in comparison to God's. His first question is, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? I want you to cup your hands for a moment, just to make sure you're awake. And I want you to imagine how much water you could hold in your hands. For just a minute, probably you could hold maybe like 100 mils or something like that, eh? Only that, though. How big would your hands have to be to hold all of the world's water? How big? You know, every day we experience in the world about 45,000 thunderstorms. Each thundercloud contains around 100,000 tons of water. The four great lakes of the US, if they were poured over the whole continent, would cover the whole place 2.3 meters deep. That's a lot of water. In the oceans, it con they contain 820, sorry, 328 million cubic 
miles of water. That's a lot of water. How big are God's hands that he can measure the water in his hands? And Isaiah is speaking directly to the Babylonians here. He's saying, you remember your creation myth where your god Marduk was trying to create the waters and the world, and he couldn't even do it on his own. He had to get the sea god involved. Look at our God. He can hold the waters in his hands. How great is he? Then I want you to stretch out your hands, please. And have a look at it, how wide it is. Just your hand span. That bit of it, all right? It's not that difficult. <laughs> it's about the width of a carrot or a small banana or something, isn't it? But God's span is big enough to mark off the heavens. He is so vast. You know what? If the 93 million miles between here and the sun were represented by the thickness of a single piece of paper, it would take a stack 23 meters high to reach the nearest star. There are so many stars that if you were to count the ones in our galaxy alone at the rate of three every second, it would take you 24 hours a day, it would take you a millennium. And if you want to count all of them in the whole universe, it would take you 100 trillion years. Yet God is so great, he can mark off the stars with the span of his hands. You know what? It doesn't matter so much to me whether you think this is completely literal or pictorial. There is something here about the hugeness, the splendor, the sovereignty of our God who is able to do these things. And then he goes on, he says, who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? God holds the dust of the earth in a basket and he measures the mountains and the hills. Imagine for a moment fitting the Sahara Desert into your measuring jug. Imagine for a moment fitting the dust off my mantelpiece into your measuring jug. And yet God holds the dust of the whole earth. Imagine trying to size up the scale of the mountains on your bathroom scales. Everest is the pinnacle, isn't it, of our mountains. And over 180 people have lost their lives trying to climb it. But God weighs the mountains. God is bigger than the biggest things that we know about. And our God is too small, isn't he? Our God is too small. And Isaiah goes on to say, who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him and who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding who dares advise God. But there's no shortage of people queuing up to advise God. I know, I'm in that queue some days. Are you? Telling God how he should do things, telling God that I know better, telling God that I don't agree with his way of doing stuff. Do you ever do that? Or is it just me? It's just me. <laughs> it's worrying, isn't it? So many people advising God, criticizing his ways, arguing with him, saying, here's a better way. Here's another better way. Let's go this way. Our God is sovereign, powerful over the nations, powerful over this world that he has made. He sustains all things. And bizarrely, 
given how great our God is, we choose to give our worship to other things. Why would you do that? Why would we do that? When we can worship our majestic, glorious creator, why would we give our worship to other things? But Isaiah says, to whom then will you compare God? What image will you compare him to? As for an idol, a craftsman casts it and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A man too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. He looks for a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not topple. (laughs) Isaiah speaks with disdain and humor. Like, why would you choose to do that? Why would you choose to get something made out of a bit of iron with some gold over the top of it and a chain on it? Why would you choose to get a piece of wood because you can't even afford gold or silver and hope that it stands up and doesn't fall over the whole time and worship that? Why would you do that? But throughout all millennium, we have been worshipping idols made of wood and stone and gold and silver. And we still do that, but we just call them different names now, at least some of us do. I say this uh, carefully. It was really challenging looking for pictures of idols on the internet. Primarily because most of them have significant enhancements But it made me think that things haven't changed very much. From thousands of years before Christ to 2018, the things that we worship are still basically the same. The idols that we put in the place of God in our lives and give our time and our money and our energy to are broadly the same things that have always taken the place of God Almighty for human beings. And so we still worship sex in its wrong way in our world today. It is still the way we sell almost everything. It is still what is confusing our young people beyond most of our imaginations actually sat on the chairs in this room right now. It is the God. Sex is the God in our world that many worship, and it always always has been for millennia. We worship status because we think that that's really important and that will fill the hole in our heart. And so we worship status. So where you are in the pecking order is also important to your life and what's going to happen with it. We worship wealth, whether it's gold or silver or our bank balance or the job we have that brings in that wealth. It is our idol, and particularly in this nation, it is our idol. We worship power and achievement. Why is it that on a day when hundreds died in a Guatemalan uh, volcano eruption, Peter Stringfellow is on the front of every newspaper? Isn't it about all of those things that I've just mentioned? Because we idolize that over and against human dignity, people who have died 
through a natural disaster? Why do we worship what we have created rather than the creator? And it's not just a story for Isaiah and Judah. It's our story too, isn't it? To be challenged, to make sure that our focus is on our God, our great and amazing and wonderful and awesome, uncontainable, incomparable God in heaven. And not on these things, which if you give them a little kick, will just fall over. Whoops, there's your idol gone again. And so at the end of this passage, Isaiah once again reminds the people, do you not know? How many times does he say that? They clearly don't know. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Hasn't it been told you from the beginning? Haven't you understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. God takes less effort to put up the whole universe than most of us do to pitch a tent. He raises people and he brings them to naught. Don't worry about Donald Trump or Kim Jong-un or whatever his name is. Don't worry about them. God has it in his hands. He raises up. He brings down. He carries out his purposes. To whom will you compare me? Who is my equal? Lift up your eyes. Lift up your eyes. And then back to that verse. Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my cause is disregarded by my God. Let me ask you a question. What are your two big issues this morning? Two, two, T-double-O, right? Your two big issues, not your two big issues. You can have more than two, right? (laughs) What are your two big issues this morning? What is the place in your life where you're saying, God, you're not paying attention? You're not looking out for me. I feel alone right now. What are your two big issues this morning? Because God is speaking to you. He is speaking to us. This is why this prophetic word is here for us to look at. Because God spoke to Isaiah and to Judah, and he has continued to speak through his word throughout history to this day right now. So what are your two big issues this morning? Do you not know, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth, He will not grow tired or weary. Oh, you know what? I just go, like a big sigh. You know, like at least there's one person who's not tired and weary. I mean, I don't know any others, so it's kind of good that God is not tired or weary. Because there's somewhere you can go, someone you can depend on, someone who's always watching because he's not asleep, always concerned because he's not run out of energy. His understanding no one can fathom. That's just a little warning. You know, we don't always get it. It's not our place to always understand it. 
He gives strength to the weary. I'll not ask for a show of hands. He increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. You know that word that's used hope and some in the older versions it was those who wait on the Lord's. I think sometimes we, we understand that as a kind of wishful thinking kind of thing. Well, I'll just carry on my life and wishfully hope that maybe God will pitch up one day. Or we're waiting in a kind of, I don't have an appointment kind of waiting. <laughs> like I'll probably never get seen. There probably won't be enough time. But I'll, I'll just wait. I'll just hope. But it's, it's very um, passive. This word here that we translate as wait or hope is active, not passive. It's about intentionally, actively laying hold of God. So Isaiah has painted this glorious picture. He's saying you actively need to lay hold of this. You need to grab it. You need to hope with intent, putting your trust in. You need to wait with a kind of active waiting. So we wait... As we read scripture, we wait as we intentionally engage in worship. We wait as we sit quietly, being aware of the presence of God. We wait even as we walk, but with intent, looking at creation and talking to God about what he has made and engaging with him. But we need to do it actively, intentionally, that kind of waiting, hoping, laying hold of the greatness of God. So it's not passive, just hoping that one day something will turn up. It's a, this is where my life is, but I want to see the glory of God in this. I want to see his strength in my weakness. I want to see his presence rather than his absence. So I am going to actively take hold of him. And these wonderful, wonderful verses that those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. I wonder how many of you have had the privilege of watching the eagles soar over the deserts. No, it was wonderful in the Judean wilderness to stand on the top of Masada and see the eagles soar over the wilderness. It was brilliant for Mike and I in Peru to to stand by the canyons in the Peruvian desert and see the condors soaring over the canyons. There is nothing like it. Because they do nothing. They just soar. They catch the thermals. There's the littlest tweak of the feathers. And they just soar on the thermals. And they see everything. Everything. Below them, in perspective. Those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. So lift up your eyes. Read this. As many times as it takes for it to get into your brain cells. Actively take hold of the Lord.
Draw near to him and he will draw near to you. Find your strength in him.